success, so put on mascara and your party dress. I'm your national anthem, boy, put your hands up. Give me a standing ovation. Boy, you have landed, babe, in the land of sweetness and danger, Queen of Saigon. You're listening to Ink Studs on my guest this week is Bill Cardalopoulos, and Bill is the series editor of uh, Best American Comics as well as a uh, king of comics festival programming. I don't know if you like that distinction, um, but you can find Bill um, behind the scenes at SPX as well as MoCA and most recently uh, ICAF. In, it's in Columbus, right? Yeah, so the, uh, this, this ICAF is a kind of nomadic academic conference uh, that's happened in a variety of other places, including most recently uh, University of Oregon and uh, the Center for Cartoon Studies. This uh, most recent ICAF was scheduled for uh, um, November 13th to 15th at um, uh, Ohio State University at the Billy Ireland Cartoon Library and Museum. Was it there as well last year, or...? No, you're thinking of a different uh, conference. It was a sort of one-shot event that took place to commemorate the um, opening of the new Billy Ireland Cartoon Library and Museum. There was a lot of overlap, certainly a lot of the people uh, who typically are involved with or participate in ICAF were also at this. It was also similarly uh, an academic conference combined with um, presentations by artists or interviews or Q&As with artists. But it was, it was a one-shot affair organized by the Billy Ireland Cartoon Library and Museum to commemorate the opening of that institution. Um, now, the main reason we brought you on today, I brought you on, the proverbial we... Um, the Royal the, Robin. The, the, the Royal Robin. Well, I am Canadian, so, you know, according to DeForge, we have some royalty. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, according to the kids in the hall, because they would always have the Queen of England on there. Yep. God bless those men. Mm-hmm. Um, Best American Comics 2014 uh, your first volume as uh, series editor uh, it's out now I think yes, Am I yes. Right? since yes. October 7th there we go so it's been out for almost a month um, this is your first time as series editor taking over from um, indie comics power couple uh, Jess Cable and Matt Madden that's um, right and you're partnered with uh, the editor uh scott mcleod um Mm -hmm. and maybe tell us a little bit about kind of your role um in this machine um because it's been around for a while and it's gotten pretty established at this point that every year there's a new best american comics and everyone's kind of seeing if they're on the list or if they get honorable mention um and kind of yeah your role and how you got involved with it sure 
Well, I mean, as to how I got involved with it, um, uh, I, I don't, I don't know that there's a, a very compelling narrative about that, other than to say that Matt and Jessica, as you noted, had been the series editors for um, six years, and uh, had taken. They had accepted a, a long-term res artist residency in Angoulême in France, so they accepted that and essentially stepped down from the series editor position. Um, I presume that they recommended me for the job. I don't know how many other people were in the mix, frankly, how many other people may have even interviewed for it, but I was asked by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt to come in and interview uh, to take over that role. I, I did so. I was very happy even to be considered, and I was very excited as well when they offered me the position. Um, now, as to what the series editor does, that's uh, a different question. And in many ways, there's a lot of consistency across the entire Best American series. A lot of the Best American series, plural, um, are set up in much the same way, where there's a, a series editor who works on the title for multiple volumes and uh, a different guest editor each year. So you see the same thing if you look at, like, Best American Short Stories or Best American Essays or Best American Travel Writing. It's the same kind of um, system. And <clears throat> the the job of the series editor uh, over the course of a year is to receive all of the work that is submitted. It's, there's a totally open submission process for Best mm -hmm. American Comics. There's an address. Literally anyone can send their stuff in. And it will be considered. Nothing, nothing is dismissed out of hand. Everything that gets submitted is really treated as equally important and equally worthy of consideration, whether it's from a well-known publisher or a totally uh, uh, unknown uh, self-publisher. It doesn't, it doesn't make any difference whatsoever. On top of that, though, there's, um, there's a lot of work that gets published every year that doesn't necessarily automatically get submitted. Not every publisher, every self-publishing artist necessarily remembers to submit the work, so I do spend a lot of time um, keeping my eyes and ears open, basically encouraging people to submit their work, um, reaching out to people on the internet. Um, I go to a lot of comics festivals, including the, the ones that I'm not involved with, um, and seek out work there. And I also spend quite a bit of time looking at material on the internet, because that's a whole other ocean of comics that gets posted online, whether it's on a website or an online magazine or on Tumblr or any number of uh, formats or platforms. Um, so anyway, the goal is to try and look at as much of everything as possible, um, which is an impossible goal. Mm -hmm. uh, and <laughs> at a certain point, you just have to stop because your deadline is coming up. Uh, and, and anyway, uh, you look at everything, you look at all the submissions, you try and make sure you're getting as much uh, good stuff as possible. And um, then the next step is to, having read and looked at everything, get it down to a pre-selection of approximately 120 pieces that get submitted to each year's guest editor. So at that point, as series editor, I get a little break. Uh, <laughs> the material goes out of my hands for about a month, approximately, as the guest editor in the this past year, it was Scott McCloud. This coming year, it'll be someone else who hasn't been announced yet. Um, and then that person reads the material and makes final selections. 
and I should say too that as I'm as I'm um, pulling work together and reading through material, I am also in touch with the guest editor. I am also talking to him or her, um, asking them about what kind of material they may be interested in. Sometimes seeking things out based on those um, conversations. Um, and I do also send the material to the guest editor in waves. Mm -hmm. So I, I am able to get some feedback over the course of the process sometimes and get a sense of what kind of material the guest editor may be responding to. So anyway, once they, once they make their final choices, then that starts a whole other round of work for me um, that includes contacting the artist whose work has been selected, uh, getting preliminary permission to include the work before... Um, passing them off to someone at um, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt who does the actual contracts, uh, working with the artist to make sure that we get files for their artwork, working with the um, uh, production people, the art directors, and some other people at Houghton Mifflin Harcourt to choose cover artists, choose end paper artists, uh, figure out um, what kind of format issues the work in that particular volume raises and how we're going to solve that. Of course, I also have to write an introduction, or rather a foreword. The guest editor writes an introduction, I write a foreword. I also compose the list of approximately 90 or so notable comics that we include in the back of the book. Um, and, and there are probably uh, you know, a, a dozen other little loose threads like that um, that I'm not thinking of right now that um, tend, tend to require... Um, attention from the time that we get that first list in hand from the guest editor up until the point where um, the actual book is shipping from the printer and arriving in stores and uh, <laughs> available in bookstores and libraries and so on. So it's it's a lot of reading uh, followed by a short break and then uh, uh, a fair amount of uh, logistical follow-up and, and production work afterwards. But But working in concert at that point with a lot of uh, really skilled uh, people at Houghton Mifflin Harcourt who are super uh, professional and know exactly what they're doing and are a pleasure to work with. I'm curious about the role um, that will come with it as far as like kind of curating a conversation about comics uh, in the position you have. Uh, because I know uh, Jessica and Matt did it for four or five volumes? I'm they did it for six volumes. This, six is the volumes. this one that just came out is the ninth uh, Best American Comics volume. The first two uh, had um, Anna Elizabeth Moore on board as series editor. Uh, Matt and Jessica did it for six years, and this is my first, so it's the ninth volume. So with that, um, there's that kind of legacy there or kind of ability to uh, shape a conversation. I'm wondering if that's something in mind uh, when you're doing that as far as, like, what are you presenting um, or what's the conversation uh, with comics that you want to have, uh, especially working with uh, Scott on this, like, you know, pushing forward different types, um, or, or is it just really primarily based on content? Well, um, let's see, there are a couple of aspects to what you're asking. Um, yeah, I know, I'm terrible. Uh, I'm no, sorry. that's okay, that's all right. <laughs> um, I'm just thinking it through for myself. I think I think in, term, in terms of my own sense of what that might mean, um, part of what is interesting and exciting to me about Best American Comics is that even though um, 
it's it's published by a large mainstream publisher uh, and, and it, it's a widely distributed book and all of that um, there there's actually no um, editorial restriction that comes from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt and there is there is a mission really to just live up to the title whatever however we interpret that yeah um, so I come to this certainly having worked a lot with um, artists from uh, across the board ranging from um, some well-known artists who are published by large publishing houses uh, down to a lot of artists who aren't as well-known who in many cases are published either by very small uh, publishing houses or in many cases are self-publishing their work and um, uh between between my sense of what constitutes the best and the guest editors, there's really um, you know other than that negotiation and, and that collaboration, there's really no filter between potentially the whole of the comics field as I see it and this book that goes out to a very broad general audience. Uh, the book really has an opportunity to represent the entire breadth of the comics field. So that's, I mean, in terms of a conversation, I feel like the book has the opportunity to represent the field um, in the best way that uh, the guest editor and I uh, can collaboratively represent it directly to a very broad audience um, without any editorial mediation from the publisher. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, that, 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 can manifest itself in any number of different ways and it's going to change a lot from year to year depending on the pool of work that's available to us and depending of course on the um, critical judgments of the guest editor Um, but that's interesting to me the fact that it can be a kind of um, tour of of the world of comics um, that's only mediated by the the critical judgment of the people involved. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's interesting because a lot of the work, even in, in the Best American Comics 2014, there's some very popular work in here. There's some work that's fairly well known. There's also work in here that was probably only seen by a microscopic you audience. Gerald Jablonski in it. Yeah, Gerald Jablonski's in here. That's one example. I mean, I had a hard time even getting a copy of that comic. Um, but now there's two pages of it in the Best American Comics published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt appearing in many uh, bookstores and libraries. In airports. A, yeah, with a very large print run. So that's exciting. You know, I mean, that's not the only function of Best American Comics. I mean, the real the, it's not just a, a kind of treasure hunt or something or... or a, a, like a you know nuggets <laughs> collection, but it's um, you know I mean it's also meant first and foremost to uphold a high critical standard, and mm-hmm. um, but I think that work does uphold a high critical standard, and it's it's one that we're able to express totally irrespective of um, the the popularity uh, of that work. I mean Gerald Jablonski certainly is a great example of someone who's. You know, he's been making work since the late 1970s. I think he was in late issues of Arcade magazine, um, if I'm not mistaken. I think he was sort of like right on the tail end of 
the underground time, mm-hmm. and and he's still making stuff of, of exceptionally high quality. I mean, he's kind of an artist's artist, I think, um, and, and a bit of a critical darling among among a coterie of uh, aficionados. <laughs> but he's not he's not a famous uh, cartoonist uh, in the way that you know maybe Jaime Hernandez or Adrian Tomine or Chris Ware are. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's a great cartoonist, and that's exactly what we're honoring in the book. One of the things I was thinking about is the conversation you're having um, with with this is um, how do you kind of represent the idea of comics in one year, and is is that an intention to kind of go like, okay, 2014, um, you know, we've got Brandon Graham comic, we've got a CF comic, um, there's some burns in here. Um, you know, of course, we got some high May stuff because that's what everyone's talking about right now, and kind of making that balance of, um, you know, the conversation folks are having in comics and really capturing that moment in time. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the book, the book has a kind of um, time capsule-like quality. Uh, I think, I think the extent to which the book re- reflects whatever we might think of as a current conversation within the comics field I think that's going to be determined quite a bit by the sensibilities of the guest editor from year to year mm-hmm. um, I think for me personally um, uh, having only finished one volume in the series I myself am still looking forward to seeing how much this process might differ from year to year working with different people because right now the only complete total and finished experience that I have uh, in the series is working with Scott. And what I can tell you is that um, Scott and I had some pretty good conversations very early on, and we both agreed that it would be a good idea for the 2014 book to try and represent a fairly broad snapshot of the comics field uh, at this moment in time as we see it. Um and as a result, that's that's why uh, you know you can flip through the book and see um, such a diversity of material. Um, that that was kind of a mission that Scott uh, wanted to bring to the book, and I, I agreed that it was a good idea because I think comics have changed a lot over the last ten or so years. And for me, in my first year working on the book, it seemed like taking stock uh, with a really uh, <laughs> intelligent partner like Scott McLeod was, was uh, kind of a good step forward and would be an interesting thing to do um, and would also differentiate the volume a little bit and sort of, um, I don't know, maybe give pr- provide a kind of fresh starting point moving forward. And it'll be interesting to see to what extent other volumes do or don't have the same uh, breadth as this one, but certainly breadth breadth was um, a conscious yeah mission of this volume. It, it definitely represents Scott's analytical points of view. You know, I think I think uh, the way that Scott approached the book, dividing it up into thematically organized sections, um, is in some ways connected to the more theoretical work you see from him in books like Understanding Comics and Making Comics, but then the individual selections within those um, 
thematic areas that he identified, the individual choices, I think, speak more directly to his personal tastes as a reader. Mm-hmm. So you kind of get you kind of get like a left brain, right brain kind of quality to yeah. the volume, you know? Well, I'd, and just knowing you as much as I know about your taste and knowing um, Scott, I mean, Scott, from what I can tell, probably has a pretty wide taste, but he also has a taste for like really pop comics. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm curious, like, I'm interested about how that comes across. Um, and I guess that works with his as you see, like the analytical, you know, division of volumes, because you'll see, you know, like talked about Gerald Jablonski, uh There's Aiden Coke in there. Um, yeah. But then there's like Sailor Twain, um, mm-hmm. which is about as pop comic to me as you could almost get right now. Um, yeah, that was that was part of the conversation that we had very early. You know, he was like, you know, Scott. Scott basically said, you know, right up front, I want to make sure that we're representing, um, you know, work for younger readers. So. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, uh, Rainis Helgemeyer had a new uh, book that came out during our period, Drama. So that immediately became like a, a great candidate to serve that function in the book. He said, I'd love to have, you know, some more action adventure oriented work because I grew up with superhero comics. And I'm sure a lot of people grew up with superhero comics. I'd love to, you know, you know, gesture in that direction. So, you know, it was it was a kind of an easy call for me at that point to kind of... Um, put my feelers out and say oh let's look at let's look at saga let's look at this and that mm-hmm. uh, so you know in, there is there is an aspect for me working on this like i said of um uh communicating with the series editor and showing them the stuff that they're interested in seeing and i think i think we really were very fortunate that we were able to represent um a lot of those different areas in comics this year with some very um, exemplary works. Now, tell me, I want a little more about about you um, and kind of maybe some background because I first met you, I guess, eight years ago um, at SPX when I had no idea what I was doing and running around going to comic conventions and buying too many comics. Uh, and y- you were doing, as you still do, uh, the programming for SPX. Mm-hmm. Uh, how long had you been doing at that point? Um, probably not very long. This past SPX, I think, was my ninth year doing the programming at SPX, if I'm not mistaken. I believe the first year that I did it was 2006. Okay. I want to say. I think that I remember the first year that I did it. Um, that I did. I, it was the programming director for SPX. We had. Um, a poster by Tony Millionaire, and I'm pretty sure that was the... That was the year I was there. 2006. Oh, that was probably my first year doing the program oh, okay. at, that, at that comics festival in Bethesda, Maryland. That was one where, I think, well, Scott McLeod was there. Um, yeah, Scott was there. And uh, I think I went to a panel, and I sent you a recording of, uh, with Anders Nilsson, Gabrielle Bell, and Kevin Heisinga. Oh, uh, yeah. How to Draw Thinking. Yeah. Moderated by Isaac Cates. I remember that panel. That was a good one. Yeah. Three very quiet people. <laughs> yeah, the Isaac theory, worked the really theory hard on that, that one. If I put them all together, there wouldn't be anyone who um, they could hide behind. <laughs> See, th- that's a dangerous theory because usually what ends up happening is they all hide behind the moderator. Maybe, yeah. 
I've been in that position. It's fine, though. That's okay. You know, I think quiet, quiet is not a bad thing. I think only in radio is, is silence considered a bad thing, and maybe even then it shouldn't be. Um, we'll do some John Cage moments later on. Okay. So, but uh, before that, you got your start. I think you told me once you were assistant for Spiegelman at one point. Yeah, I worked. I worked for several years, uh, kind of on and off as a part-time studio assistant for art, and also have uh, done a little bit of work for Francoise Mouly, also doing uh, production on the first couple of seasons of Tune Books. Although I, I got to, um, I had the opportunity to do that work because I was already even before working for them and before doing the SPX programming, I was doing. Um, I was doing some writing and editing online. Mm-hmm. Um, if you really want to get into deep background, the first, the first really public sort of thing that I did um, that's connected to anything that I'm doing now was I wrote a blog called Egon for several years that was um, uh, really focused, I guess, on, on art comics, um, I suppose you could say. Um, at, at a moment when there weren't one million blogs about comics already. Uh, so as a result, I was able to kind of carve out a little bit of a niche. Although I started at almost exactly the same time that um, the Comics Journal started the Journalista blog that Dirk Deppie yeah. uh, wrote for several years. And I think Tom started the Comics Reporter probably within... I think he just celebrated his 10 year. Okay, so he would have. Yeah, he started. He started a little after, I guess I did, because I think I started in two thousand two. So that means Tom maybe started in two thousand three or two thousand four, mm-hmm. um, and Journalista was a little bit before that. But very quickly, it, it seemed like it was. You know, I was working on my blog, and Journalista was going up every day, and then Tom started his, and he was writing every day. Um, and as a result of writing that blog, uh, which I did for a few years. I was also invited by Jeff Mason um, to reinvent Indie Magazine as an online magazine. So I did several quarterly issues of Indie Magazine uh, doing various kinds of articles and features and reviews, uh, including a really long oral history of Raw Magazine. Um, and that that was really, um, th- through, through Indie and Egon, I really had a great opportunity to start meeting and talking to a lot of people. And I think that probably more or less led to my doing some work for art, more or less led to my being invited to do the programming for SPX. And then from there, I've done a lot of other things. Now, the you didn't finish the raw oral history, right? It was still... Well, I mean, it was finished such as it was at the time that I published it online. Um, I have done I have done a few more interviews uh, along those lines since I published that, uh, but I've never I haven't ever uh, shall we say like advanced it to the point where it would be worth um, putting out maybe another product that would be a yeah. substantially updated or revised version of that thing. I, I, I've I read them, and I read them actually quite a long time ago, and I really enjoyed them um, because Raw being such an important part in alternative art comics um, history uh, that really isn't explored beyond the 
people talking about mouse. Um, sure. Mouse was just like one component, and so. And it's been explored a little bit since then, but at the time, you would have been hard pressed to find anything recent about it. You know, I mean, keep in mind, it was like I don't remember exactly what year I I did that. Maybe it was like two thousand five or two thousand six or something like that. There's been so much writing about comics on the internet since then, but yeah. <laughs> at the time, it was still there was still a lot of uh, there was still a lot, of, a lot of ground to break, and and there still is actually, but um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I had I had a I had a real hard time finding much about Raw Magazine online. Period. Um, even just just finding out what the contents were of every issue. Now there's some documentation of that kind of stuff online, but at the time, uh, it, you know, it really it felt kind of like a, a a holy grail. You know, I had a couple a few random issues of Raw, but even just getting to go to um, uh, the raw office and and sit down with the issues and take my time with them and photocopy the tables of contents and so on felt like a, a a rare opportunity just to have contact with this thing that was felt like part of a, a almost almost vanished or vanishing <laughs> uh, recent uh, piece of comics history uh, because so many of those issues are, are really hard to come by and it's so advanced um, it is it's yeah. you know. I'm very, very excited to see the Zap collection. Um, mm. I probably won't get it because I don't have $500 to spend on comics. Uh, but for me, it's like, yeah, okay, that's kind of that point in time. Yeah, but like a raw thing would just, you know, kind of blow everything out of the water. Uh, just because, I mean, there's still stuff in there that people haven't really um, gotten accomplished yet the way some of the folks in there uh, have. It's true, and I think Art more or less made a similar point when I interviewed him for that Raw Magazine oral history. He said something. I don't. I don't want to quote it exactly, but I'm because I'm sure I'm not going to get it exactly right. But he said something like um, he was reflecting on Raw, and one of the things that he noted was it's surprising how slowly things move. Um, there's stuff even in the very first issues of Raw that seemed, you know, maybe very experimental and avant-garde then, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, like 30 years ago, uh, that still seems uh, experimental and avant-garde now. Uh, you know, things that, that haven't still haven't been uh, fully assimilated and synthesized and processed and, and are still, unfortunately, in this kind of artificial category that we sequester things in. You know, we think of certain things as being, you know, quote-unquote experimental, which is a term I don't really like because it, it just, it it has this kind of label around it, like is the work is somehow unassimilable by the mainstream. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's kind of thrown to, say, work like CF or someone who, who's actually telling pretty straightforward stories mm -hmm. in a way um, where when I think of like um, Ra with experimental like uh, is it Pascal Dory yeah. uh, who would do these like huge giant like massive spreads of just violence and and to me there's th that's one of those folks who I'm thinking of just like no one's really touched on yeah. um, being able to hit that kind of mark mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah it's tough you know I mean one of the things with comics in general too um, not to not to distract from the raw conversation but I, I see this also um, when I go to Europe and, and look at 
some of the many wonderful things that are published uh, in, in France and elsewhere that we don't have in the U.S. And one of the things that becomes really clear to me is that we simply just don't have a ton of comics publishers in the United States mm-hmm. um, that are that are you know treating comics as anything other than uh, you know a potentially mainstream kind of thing, and you know as a result, if if you know if the work doesn't hit the tastes of a relatively small number of editors who make those publishing publishing decisions, it's it's just not gonna get out there. You know, if there isn't someone at Fanographics or DNQ or one of maybe half a dozen of other houses who really, really loves Pascal Dury and is willing to do the work to yeah. try and put that work over, it's just not going to happen, you know? Um, and that might and, be I mean, one of the things that, that might be a little bit of change is Fanographics' new uh, FU Press, um, where I think they'll be trying more challenging work that doesn't necessarily hinge on being able to sell as many copies. Yeah, we'll see. I, I mean, I haven't, I haven't really seen those books. I, I sort of glimpsed them at SPX. There was one uh, that was, uh, I think it was Fukator, and then, but there was another one that um, I, I don't remember the name. It was by an artist who I wasn't familiar with, but it looked really fantastic. It is amazing. Yeah. Um, what, was actually, that, what was that book called? Oh, I can't remember. But I showed it to uh, to to Spiegelman um, yeah. after the Brooklyn Book Fest and blew uh-huh. his mind. Yeah, because um, yeah, yeah. the guy's a 96-year-old, uh, he's an expressionist painter, and his whole book is just about how much he hated the modern art movement in New York. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's it's amazing. There's these like full, one you know, panel editorial type Victorian comics uh, about how much he hates uh, Jackson Pollock. Yeah, that looked really good. I need to get that book. One of the things is uh, about working on Best American Comics is that my um, my reading is so strongly determined by the needs of the series sometimes that I just kind of pass over stuff that just doesn't seem like I need to look at it for the book right now. So it's like I, I sometimes have to make these like really shallow assessments or I'll just be looking at a book and it's like, up oh, image, 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 this isn't comics. Okay, next, you know, and it's like <laughs> it, it feels horrible sometimes or like I don't read as many uh, international translations or, um, or you know, like historic comic script collections as I used to because I have to read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of new North American comics published within the last... 12 months every year and that really <laughs> controls my my reading quite a quite a lot do you find um you kind of need reminders from folks of like oh you should really actually check this book out um because you may have like lost over it because you're just so overwhelmed well i don't i mean if if i see something i i do i, I do actually trust my judgment pretty well but i definitely consult with people a lot i mean i ask friends all the time knowledgeable friends and colleagues uh if there's anything out there that um is kind of obscure that they think is is worth noting um because there's always a chance that there's something out there that's really obscure that uh is actually quite strong and and ought to be a serious contender for inclusion in the book um like in the 2014 book i have to say i was very happy that we found um uh, Viewotron number two by Sam Sharp that had the story Mom in it that we excerpted. Um, I don't know if you read that. That was like the anthropomorphic autobiographical story about mm-hmm. it. Kind of remind me a little bit of uh, Sindretta. Sure. Bit. Yeah, yeah. I could see yeah. that. Yeah. Just a similar um, style. 
Sure, sure. And and Sam is Sam Sharp is an artist who I really was not especially aware of. Um, I only saw this work because he handed it to me at Autoptic, uh, where I was <laughs> uh, collecting um, submissions for Best American Comics, and um, it just you know kind of immediately skyrocketed up to my short list and uh, was selected by Scott to be included in the book very very quickly and enthusiastically without a whole lot of um, uh, you know consideration it was it was uh, really exciting to see how quickly this comic went from being something that I hadn't heard of to something that we were about to publish in this uh, <laughs> book from Hot and Muffin Harcourt you know and um, but anyway so so that's very exciting when that happens. I don't necessarily anticipate that there's always something like that out there that's totally unknown to me, but that immediately becomes like one of my favorite things of the year. But I'm, I live haunted by this possibility that there is always one more awesome comic out there uh, that I somehow didn't see. And um, uh, so I, I talk to people a lot. I talk to a lot of friends and colleagues who I trust uh, to see if there's anything that they would recommend that I might not be aware of. Now, did you always kind of want to get involved in comics in some kind of like aspect like this, editorial, teaching? Um, was this something that was always of interest to you in college and stuff? Or did you just kind of fall into it with the right experiences? I definitely have, you know, like a lot of people, uh, who you talk to probably, um, uh, you know, have been super into comics from the time I was a child. Although I had my kind of up and down periods. There were times where I'd get really obsessed and times where I'd sort of put it behind me and be like, okay, that was something I liked when I was a kid. I'm not into that anymore. But then inevitably uh, sort of coming back around to it. Um, I would say from a certain point, you know, about halfway through or towards the end of college, uh, forward I was really focused on comics not necessarily expecting that I was going to be involved with comics professionally but um, I don't know it, it's hard to say I mean I can't really say I always had um, the clearest sense of vision about what exactly I was going to be doing professionally mm. um, you know there were periods of time where I was super obsessed with comics and just kind of making money doing various kinds of graphic design and web development type of work and and um without necessarily knowing how that was all going to play out um but regardless just remaining really focused on comics and and always um wanting to know as much as possible about comics looking looking for ways to be involved certainly um you know, I, and like I said, when I started that blog in about 2002, that was really the beginning of uh, a, a type of involvement that I feel has kind of led continuously from one step to the next since mm -hmm. then. Um, but even before that, you know, for the, from, you know, the time I was in college and the handful of years afterwards before I started the blog, I was certainly very focused on comics um probably more as just like a very active audience member um but but looking looking for ways i think to get involved i've also i also um in college 
you know, I've always drawn too. And in college, I drew some comics and I made a few, couple of minis after college too. Um, but uh, I, I never, I never pursued that consistently enough. And and my interests tended to take me, I suppose, in more of a critical or scholarly direction. I'm curious about that aspect because I mean, it's there's always this weird, blurry line between. Um, being a creator and being a critic, um, and, and I'm always uncomfortable. I don't want to say uncomfortable, but I'm just it, it's um, because you, you don't make comics now. You made some in the past. You made some minis, um, but clearly your role is is as a critic. Um, and I mean, better or worse, uh, best American comics is 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 a criticism in a way mm-hmm. because sure, you're, sure. Um, and, it's a critical and, statement. Exactly, and so that that kind of role that you're putting your sticking with yourself of uh, of of just being a critic. And um, do you see an importance there of like, I I am a critic. I don't need to be part of this the the creative system um, in the same way as I see other folks who kind of try to straddle and I don't want to say get the best of both worlds because I don't think there's the best in both worlds, but. Um, and this is maybe something that you see more in mainstream um, endeavors, too. As I don't as know. It's hard to say. Like, I, I don't know that... Um, uh, I mean, th- those two functions are different. Mm-hmm. I think the points of overlap are interesting, though. Um, I mean, it's it's been said many times that, you know, in comics, especially because we don't have a big academic apparatus around it or a, a rich, necessarily critical apparatus much of the time that many of the best critics have been other cartoonists, certainly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I feel like a lot of my education about comics was reading interviews with people like Spiegelman and others who, you know, would speak very articulately about comics history and comics form and their influences and so on and so forth. Um, and for myself, um, I would say that the fact that I have drawn i have some drawing ability i've made some comics i even i haven't made a couple that you know looking back i think are you know reasonable and not just you know total amateurish uh nonsense and i think um you know as a result there are probably aspects of comics that seem uh less mysterious and more accessible to me than they might to a scholar who mm-hmm. has never even tried to draw anything. Um, I think that's something that's quite apparent sometimes if you do spend a lot of time with people who identify as comic scholars who are within, uh, who are more firmly within the world of academia than I am. Yeah, well, uh, even, I, even scholarly, I see, is very different from the critical like that's yeah sure sure i mean and you know i teach at sva but that's very different from having an academic career i don't i have a master's degree but i don't have a phd i'm not you know a full-time faculty member anywhere i mean i'm i i would need probably to get it my degree is not a terminal degree i would need to get a phd if i really wanted to pursue like a tenure track job and all that kind of stuff i mean if that were the path that i wanted i would have you know made different choices probably years ago um but uh 
know, there are people within that world who are very focused on comics also. You know, many of them go to academic conferences like ICAF and, and, and things like that. And, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, there are mailing lists devoted to comic scholarship. And sometimes uh, people ask really basic questions about the production of comics. And it it's sort of a reminder occasionally that, like, oh, yeah, there are these people who are really smart who are focused on comics but don't actually know, like, you know, how you rule out panel borders or something like that. You know, just, <laughs> you know, just really, you know, simple things, you know. And um, I don't know. I, Knowing about ruby lith coloring. Yeah, I guess, you know, or whatever. I mean, I I like having a diverse range of um, activities personally. I don't just do one thing. Um, I always do a little bit of writing. I always end up somehow, you know, doing a certain amount of, like, pre-press production on various kinds of <laughs> projects. You know, I mean, even for, for ICAF, it just happened. You know, I... I worked with the poster artist and, and designed the poster and got it ready for press and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, I've, I published a translation of a French graphic novel. I worked on production for books for Art and Francoise. I mean, it's, it's, a, whole, it's a whole range of activities. Um, and it, a lot of it feels creative to me. Let's talk a little bit about the Rupert Mulot, um, in it book. The Oh, God, I can't even think of the title right now. Barrel of Monkeys. There we go. Which I, of course, loved, as you know, because I, I interviewed them, um, thanks to your help. Um, is there more planned Reba stuff, or is just kind of everything else taking over? I Yeah, I, I, I kind of got a little waylaid by um, by getting the Best American Comics job, and it, uh, it ended up taking up a lot of my time. I do still have some plans um as as an editor and publisher apart from best american comics but between the opportunity of that project and just some other life stuff like having to move uh out of uh, a great apartment that was a really good live workspace uh, <laughs> to, uh, a, a more normal uh brooklyn apartment uh that's a less good live workspace <laughs> but still you know very nice um yeah, you know, I've had a lot. I've had a lot of um, other things that have taken precedence and have kept me from uh, going down that track. But um, uh, working on that project was wonderful. I continue to be uh, really engaged with um, the world of French language comics and international comics more broadly, uh, and that was one way of building a bridge between uh, a European um, comic scene that I personally was really coming to learn a lot about and enjoying very much. Uh, but I, I'm continuing to build those bridges in lots of other ways, even though I'm not um, putting out another book right at this moment. Um, I've been bringing a lot of international guests to comics festivals. Yeah, um, I, I want to touch on specifically... Um... Uh, the international flavor that you brought to the Brooklyn Graphics Comics Festival mm -hmm. um, for those, was it three years you guys did? Four years. Four years? Yeah. Uh -huh. um, and, and how that was an important element for you. Um, sure, and I and I continue to do that too at every other festival I've worked on. I, mm -hmm. I uh, So yeah, I mean, in, in Brooklyn, uh, we brought, in 2012, we had 
Florent Rupert there for uh, the kind of early debut of Barrel of Monkeys, as well as um, Lex Bolex, Olivia Schrauen, um, uh, Nina Antico, Zena Birashed, uh, and, and several others. Um, we also had Carmela Shergi from Fremok with Thierry Van Hasselt, also from Fremok. Um, uh, we had, you know, people there from, uh, we had Tommy Musturi from Kuti Kuti and the Dongari crew there. And, you know, these are, these are people who I've been very lucky, um, to meet and spend a lot of time with, uh, often at international comics festivals. I've been traveling to Europe at least a couple times a year the past few years. I also, uh, got to go to a comics festival in Colombia last year, mm-hmm. uh, called Entre Vignettas. That's very good and has a very international character. Um, Gabrielle Bell was also a guest the year that I went. Uh, Anders Nelson, Peggy Burns, Frank Santoro, uh, and, and I think Sam Alden have also been to this festival. Yeah, yeah. Bring guests from France and other countries, as well as artists from throughout South America. So that's been really cool. Um, and, you know, this past year at MoCA, we had... Um, Jos Svarta, Marian Feol, and Brest Vandenbroek. Um, at SPX, we had Dominique Goblet, Ivana Lagbe there, as well as Daniel Quiroz uh, from the Entre Vignettes Festival in Colombia. Anyway, I mean, it's a lot. It's a long list. Yeah. And Arina Mosainen from Finland, ICAF. I, I could go on and on. Uh, I'm sure it's boring <laughs> to listen to me uh, list all these names. Um, but the point is, I've been very fortunate to develop uh, a lot of international contacts. Um, I've been very fortunate to be a guest at a lot of international comics festivals. Mm-hmm. and um, Which I will put on record very jealous. <laughs> yeah, well, you're going to England soon, right? Yeah. Yeah, no but... one has brought me to England, so I'm a little jealous too. And anyway... Um, you know, and I'm just, I'm just, um, I feel like I'm just trying to hold up my end of the bargain by, um, by bringing people to the U.S. Since I've been very fortunate to go to other countries, uh, but either by myself or with American comics artists who I might be doing conferences or or exhibits with. I mean, I went to a French comics festival with Kim Deitch, and we did an exhibit there. You know, I've I've done a lot of interesting things like that. So I'm just I'm just trying to um, keep the channel of communication going in the other direction, mm-hmm. um, and that's really important to me. And I, I mean, in a weird way, I kind of feel like um, all I'm trying to do is create a more realistic picture of comics because comics are international. I'm I'm not arguing that they should be international. They are international. Yeah. <laughs> and. Um, you know what I'm trying to do is just make sure that um, the the picture of comics that we see in the U.S. Uh, gets closer and closer to that reality, um, because I think I do think that in Europe, in particular, in in the French-speaking countries and in Western Europe generally, um, they are much better at representing the American side of comics in Europe than we are at representing the European side of comics in America. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there are a lot more American guests who get invited to European comics festivals than happens the other way around. There are a lot more American books that get translated into French uh, than happens the other way around. Um, especially when you go to the French-speaking countries, they are very aware 
of American comics. And in many cases are very up to date. I mean, they, you know, they've got, they've got, uh, books in French by some, you know, relatively young, uh, American comics artists. I mean, it's not just like the old classics like Crazy Cat and Windsor McKay. Um, so anyway, um, so I've just I've just been working very hard with with festivals, with international agencies and conferences uh, to represent the international side of comics in the United States to the best of my ability. I mean, there are areas of international comics that I'm not the most qualified person to speak to. Um, you know, I've certainly never been to Asia, and I can't really speak to that. Um, but other people are very good at that. Chris Butcher, for example, in Toronto yeah. has been pretty good at bringing both French and Japanese artists to TCAF. Um, so anyway, I mean... It's good to... It, I mean, it, it's better to be um, extremely well-versed in certain sections than be able to talk about a little bit of you know, each section, I think. Yeah, yeah. I definitely feel like um, I've been very lucky to go to France especially often enough that um, I can feel I can go over there and, and feel like it's actually possible to kind of get up to date with new artists younger artists independent artists especially um, you know from the smaller publishers um, because if you go like twice in one year for example the second time you go it's been just long enough that you'll notice that there are some new books at the bookstore but just recently enough that it doesn't feel like you've walked into an alternate dimension and don't recognize anything you know what i mean yeah um so i can go to the comic book stores every time i go to paris and i'll look around and i'll be like oh that's new that's new that's new what's that and i'll i'll check out the things that catch my eye well i'm that's kind of one of the reasons i'm excited to go to england to be my first you know over the the ocean voyage uh but the british scene i mean it in itself is completely different from the u.s or the canadian scenes um there's a lot yeah, of stuff sure. i have no idea about and like i'm trying to prep for this trip and i don't know who i'm interviewing i mean i know now but it's yeah. still a hodgepodge mix of just different disparate folks just to try and really grab an idea of of what i see there sure well it should be fun i mean uh, I think I think um, having having the podcast will certainly be a nice entree for you because people will want to talk to you Hopefully. more than they would if you were just a you know a, an obsessed comic <laughs> <laughs> stepping off the airplane. So and, and it's a real pleasure. It's a pleasure to go to other countries and and be invited into people's you know studios or uh, you know various places where people who are involved with comics are gathering together and, and yeah. sort of learn learn about the lay of the land in, in another comics culture. Now, one of the things I was thinking about is, uh, as uh, well-versed as you are um, about art comics, uh, modern art comics, I'm curious of the stuff that Teenage Bill was into. Um, you just want to reduce everyone to the same level of nerd. Like, you just want I just, I to just, be a nerd. I just... I, I think it's important for us to embrace these different parts. Yeah. Um, that that form the identity. Uh huh. Um, so we have, you know, we've got those things that we're known for, but we also have those secret shames. Well, yeah, I suppose. Um, <laughs> you know, growing up, I, I mean, part of it is access. First of all, it's not like I grew up uh, around the corner from uh, 
Jim Hanley's universe or something. You know, I grew up in, in suburban New Jersey, and I was buying my comic books from the grocery store. Uh, so, of course, those were Marvel and DC comics. Um, and, and when I got into high school, that was around the time that um, uh, the image kind of boom and all, all of that kind of speculator uh, stuff that we now so dearly regret happened. And like a lot of towns, there was a little store in my town that previously had been, uh, I guess, more of a baseball card kind of place. And then when the baseball cards went bust uh, and that bubble burst, it became a, a comic book place. But again, it wasn't like a, um, uh, you know, it wasn't a, a, like a independently minded comic book store that was trying to get, you know, push Cerebus or whatever on you. It was... Uh, you know, a place that was trying to sell polybagged stuff to kids and telling them that it was a good investment. Mm -hmm. Which isn't to say that I didn't also like that stuff a lot. I mean, of course, I um, I read a lot of uh, superhero comics, Marvel comics, DC comics, Image comics as a kid, um, all through high school, and you know, and even into college. I, I would say it was maybe about halfway through college I started um, going to New York on my own a little bit more when I would come home uh, to where I grew up in New Jersey and I started going to Forbidden Planet and exploring um, other kinds of comics a little bit more. Did you have a point where you're like, okay, fuck this, I can't read this shit anymore? You mean regarding superhero comics particularly? Yeah. Well, you know, never say never. Um, (laughs) You know, the whole history of comics includes... Uh, gems that emerged from the least likely places. Um, in terms of my own history as a reader, I think, you know, I, I think like a lot of people, I I, um, I started to get more and more into things like Love and Rockets and Eight Ball and, and things like that at a certain point. But I was also reading um, simultaneously some superhero comics um, and you know, just not regarding them in exactly the same way. I think the superhero comics I was reading almost more habitually, just as a kind of like light entertainment. Um, and it's you know, there, there's a whole lot of inertia involved when you've been reading comic books featuring the same characters from the time you were like nine years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I got to a certain point where I think I just kind of felt like I just kind of tapped out. Uh, for the most part, the pleasure that I was getting as a reader. I remember um, anecdotally um, there was a certain moment when like Marvel had a kind of, uh, I don't know, like a rejuvenation or something and they were relaunching a lot of titles and this was when they had um, those Grant Morrison X-Men comics, the new X-Men. Yeah, the the leather X-Men. Yeah, the leather X-Men. Yeah. And, you know, there was, like, a lot of stuff happening around that moment with, like, um, it seemed like there were a lot of relaunches and, like, edgy choices, you know, with, like, Mike Allred drawing um, X-Force. Yep. And Ecstatics, the follow-up. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, I remember at that moment kind of feeling like, wow, you know, okay, this is, you know, this is interesting. They're doing some clever stuff or whatever. And reading those, you know, Leather X-Men comics, the new X-Men with Grant Morrison, and you know it was it was really the combination of like the you know the the kind of fresh take on the characters, but also the artwork uh, by is it Frank Quitely? Is that how you say his name? Yeah, 
And that's not a that's like a pseudonym from what I understand. Yeah, it's uh, Vince something because Frank Whiteley, quite frankly. Right. Um, it's a, it's like a, yeah. Anyway, I remember reading a few of those, and and then there was like inevitably, I guess, um, an issue that had like a fill-in artist, and that just like that just stopped me like dead in my tracks. Like I I the minute I tr- I started to read the issue with the fill-in artist, it was like. I couldn't. I could barely get through it, um, and I just kind of had this moment of of thinking. I remember very specifically, like, you know what? This is probably about as good as these types of comics are going to get for me at this point. And it's a it's a real like limited, <laughs> like yeah. low yield uh, return here. Uh, you know, it's kind of you know you just kind of hit diminishing returns at a certain point. Um, so yeah, from that point forward, I think I. I just kind of doubled down on, um, on on the other stuff that was more attractive to me anyway. Uh, so I, I think it had less to do with... It wasn't so much at that point um, getting turned on to independent comics as a result of that. I had sort of already been turned on to them. I think that was more of just that moment of like maybe for the most part letting go of the habit of yeah. also looking at the type of comics that I've been reading since I was nine years old, but I'm still, I'm still open-minded. I mean, um, you know, periodically you hear about some comic, whether it's, you know, Hawkeye or She-Hulk or whatever (laughs) everyone's talking about is like, there's always one that's the cool one, you know, is the, the superhero comic for people who don't normally read superhero comics. And I check that stuff out. I mean, you never know. Mm -hmm. There's some, there's some nice little. Uh, I'm not completely convinced by Hawkeye, but I think there's some interesting, good decisions made in that comic. Yeah. I think is that a. I think that that sums my feelings on it. Yeah. Um. I don't know if this granular uh, dissection of my uh, comics reading habits is necessarily uh, necessarily going to be the most exciting thing for <laughs> the Ink Studs audience. I uh, I never know what folks will like. Um, as you know, I did a panel at SPX that I thought was a train wreck, uh-huh. and apparently everyone loved it. So you never know. Yeah. Hey, well, that you know, panels are an interesting thing. I've done so many of them, and I've organized programming for so many festivals. And it's always a little bit hard to know what people are going to respond to, and there's already something kind of unusual in the simple um, premise of taking this artwork that's created by solitary people to be read in a solitary way by individuals and to try and turn that somehow into a kind of public event particularly in the context of a festival where people are you know looking for something that's sort of a combination of enlightenment and entertainment mm-hmm. <laughs> uh yeah so it's it's uh it's it's a delicate balance i i don't do them very often i find them amazingly stressful to do and i don't understand how you're able to do so much and also come up with so many amazing uh unique ideas for programming um spx especially like any like when you're doing uh programming at tcaf uh, there's some really interesting uh compelling ideas that you put forward for folks here's an idea for your panel and just to explore that as ideas really interesting because it gives you uh, as a moderator something to jump off for an hour uh, where sometimes you'll get a panel here, you're doing a British comics panel, you're going to talk to some people involved in British comics, kind of like, eh, 
you know. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Well, I mean, I try. I personally, my my, I think my approach from the very beginning, doing programming, and going back to that first SPX that you were talking about before, you know, up until that moment, my, I'd been, you know, writing a blog and also editing an online magazine about comics, the indie magazine, mm-hmm. and, you know, my my first approach, going into it, um, was that ideally, every theme for every panel would be um, sort of strong enough that it could be the subject of an article mm-hmm. rather than a panel Yeah, if you wanted to do it that way. So, for example, there was that panel, the frustrated SPX that we were talking about before, um, how to draw thinking with Anders, Gabriel, and um, uh, um, Huizenga. Kevin, yes. And, uh, you know, I mean, that could have been an article. You know, you could write an essay about how these artists and others represent um, interior life visually in their comics. Yeah. And that would be an interesting article. Um, and But instead, it was, it was a panel uh, with these people talking about their work. It doesn't always work out that well. And especially for a festival like SPX where you have to do like 22 or so events, they're not all equally, every theme is not always going to be equally singular. Some, some ideas work out a little better than others, but um, that has always kind of been the operating system. And I try not to just throw people together for very superficial reasons if I can avoid it. And like you, I've also been asked to moderate panels that have been given to me where it kind of feels like sometimes there's at least one or two people on the panel who maybe doesn't (laughs) fit quite as well with the group or something like that and it always feels like this um, kind of contortionist effort to you know sort of spin the ideas around so that you can be inclusive equally inclusive of everyone on the panel but Mm -hmm. um, you know yeah when when you're at TCAF I had to do a panel of uh comics internet um, with a bunch of web comics and then James Sturm who was going through his uh, uh, internet Sabbath should I yeah. call it that um, yeah yeah <laughs> where he was wasn't it, online. yeah he was offline for like a month or something right yeah I think it was even longer than that mm-hmm. um, and, and it was it was I, it could have been framed as an interesting conversation but it was a little challenging because there's also some animosity as well in there um i don't know it was it was an interesting dynamic folks Mm -hmm. can folks can listen to that if they want on the instead's website um do you have anything particular you plan for icaf your next thing which will probably be passed by the time we air this um we've got a lot of amazing stuff planned for icaf that's that's more of an academic conference although one of the nice things about icaf real compared to other academic conferences is that um, ICAF has two sort of missions, I guess, that are uh, not typical for academic conferences. One is that they always include artists. It's not just scholars doing um, academic presentations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, the, And they actually have quite a slate this year drawing both on people who are in the region uh, near Columbus uh, and, and artists who are coming from further away. So um, this year they're going to have uh, from the area, 
Jeff Smith, Carol Tyler, Justin Green, and Phoebe Gleckner. Um, I hope I'm not forgetting anyone. And and coming from from outside of the Columbus region, um, Dash Shaw, Congressman John Lewis, Andrew Aiden, Nate Powell, basically the whole team uh, that works on the March series, mm-hmm. and um, a really wonderful Finnish cartoonist who I met in Helsinki last year named Hanarina Moisen, and, and she'll be coming and talking about her work and also screening um, a documentary that's essentially about her, a really beautiful film um, that I don't think has been screened in the U.S. before. I don't want to say for sure that this is the first time, uh, but but it certainly has not been distributed in the U.S., so it's a very rare opportunity opportunity to see this quite beautiful Finnish documentary um, that's about it's about her. It's also about a musician who she learns from as a student, um, and she does she does really excellent work. She has a graphic novel called Issa, published by the Finnish publisher Huda Huda, and it's an autobiographical book produced in a combination of very delicate, beautifully drawn um, graphite and embroidery. Oh, uh, she, she incorporates uh, a kind of traditional Finnish embroidery into her comics, and it's really quite beautiful. Um, so I'm, I'm going to be doing a, kind of like a, a Q&A with her in Columbus. And then the following week we'll be in New York at Ben Catcher's Comics and Picture Story Symposium. Uh, doing another Q&A there also. So I'm really glad uh, there more people are going to have a chance to learn about Hanarina's work because it's really uh, quite singular. I'm excited to hear about the embroidery. That's fascinating. It's interesting. There are a few artists who are, um, in general, I mean, textiles have been kind of big lately in art generally, and uh, narrative textiles seem to be uh, a kind of emerging field. And there are actually a few artists involved with comics who I'm aware of who have incorporated uh, embroidery and textile into their work and it's really quite beautiful Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing I have coming up is I'm going in late November, November 21st to the Miami Book Fair and we're doing a panel about Best American Comics with Ben Ketchor Aidan Koch Raina Telgemeier Ed Piskor and Charles Burns. Wow. So that's a that's a tight crew. Yeah, it's a, quite a spread too. Very different kinds of work, which is exciting. Yeah, that's so, interesting. I'm looking forward to that. Don't uh, Piscor and Burns live in the same town? Or no? Uh, no, no. One's in Pittsburgh and one's the other one's in Philly. Never mind. Yes, that's correct. There we it's, go. Sorry. It's part of the Pittsburgh scene, and uh, Charles, as far as I know, lives in Philadelphia. I'm sorry, Pennsylvania people, to, to get them mixed up. They get very offended. Yeah. Um, thank you, Bill, for joining me and chatting oh, no with problem. me about comics. No problem. Um, Anytime. This was my first solo Ink Studs. Well, it was a good one. Well, you know, I mean, next there's a lot more to discuss, Robin. We're going to have to do this some other time. <laughs> we're, we we're, t- we're a little short on time, so, I, you know, I mean, we skimmed through the the Marvel DC image period, but if you really want to get into the, you know, the Larry Stroman embossed covers that I know is what you're really salivating to talk about, I mean, we can, we can go there, but you know, uh, maybe we should leave that as a mystery for maybe folks. We'll have some other power hour. 
I, I think uh, folks can maybe come to up shows and uh, bring up Larry Stroman's um, taste in delicate art styles to you. Um, that would that would be if that's a conversation you want to have with folks. Maybe a future panel, maybe at Mocha next year. All right, um, we'll think we about that. <laughs> I'll, I'll propose it and see what happens.
know him. 